This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Birthright CEO Giddy Mark. How are you, Giddy? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Ari. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Very excited. We've had some very distinguished Israeli guests recently, uh, including the ambassador to the United States, uh, the CEO of Friends of the IDF, and now uh, very, very excited to have the CEO of perhaps the largest and, and most successful uh, Jewish program in the world at this time, one could argue, and, and we'll get into that in the near future. But I want to start by just hearing a little bit about your background, where you came from, and of course, ultimately, what prepared you for the role that you've been assuming in recent years. So actually, nothing prepared me because every day prepares me for the next day. But uh, I was born in Israel in a kibbutz called Magan Michael from a very early age. My family, together with me, moved from uh, there to a place that absorbed many, many uh, new immigrants from around the world. Uh, from the kibbutz, I moved to Kfar Hasidim. And from Kfar Hasidim, I moved to a place called El Hasim, which is today completely Haredi, but at the time was half secular, half modern Orthodox. And from there, I went to the uh, IDF. I served a few years in the IDF, and uh, actually some tens, uh, 20, 30 years in reserve. Uh, I studied in Jerusalem, studied uh, economics, I studied Middle Eastern studies, and uh, later on I uh, had my MBA, and in the middle I opted to become a cadet at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of Israel. I became a career diplomat for 16 years. I served in Turkey. I served in Germany, and I served in New York, and in uh, New York, I really got to realize the very, very important role uh, that uh, the Jewish world plays uh, in the raison d'etre of the state of Israel, how Israel without the Jewish people is a weak, weak, weak nation, and how the Jewish people without Israel is also even weaker. So uh, this really brought me to the understanding that we need each other so badly in order to be a prosperous uh, communities on both sides of the ocean. So on my last day in New York, when I was preparing to go back the same night, I bumped into the visionary of Birthright Israel, uh, his name uh, is Yossi Balin, who I known as the deputy foreign minister a few years before, and he introduced me to the two philanthropies that he convinced and they're convinced to start with what we call today Birthright Israel. So after a long, long, long conversation, I did what every good Jew needs to do. First of all, we shall do and only then we shall hear. So they asked me when I, when I could start and I said yesterday. No, really, really, I said yesterday. I really started as soon as I came back to Israel. I left 16 years 
of being a diplomat behind me, and I started to become the first employee of uh, Birthright Israel, which later on uh, became known in Hebrew and in English-speaking countries as Taglit, meaning discovery in English. Beautiful. Now, just going back to your early childhood, um, you said you were born on a kibbutz and uh, eventually moved around, it seems like a bunch. Were your parents immigrants? Where were they from? My parents uh, came from Central Europe. My mother left uh, Austria on the last train that left uh, Austria after the Anschluss, the taking over of Austria by the Nazis in 19. Uh, 38, 39, and uh, she uh, fled to Israel. Luckily, she was a member of a Zionist movement, so she could get in. And my father came over to Israel two years later. He also was a member of a Zionist movement. Uh, he himself is coming from an ultra-religious family. His mother was Satmer, his father was Viznitz, and he grew up in Transylvania. And uh, he came over to Israel in 1940 to discover in 1945 that he and three of his siblings were the only ones left of the 12 kids and two parents that the family uh, consisted of before the war. So they uh, spent some years in Kibbutzim in Israel and then uh, they established a family of which I'm a proud member. Wow, it's an, an amazing story. It sounds like each of them just sort of uh, were blessed enough to miss the brunt of the war, um, while perhaps their families were not so uh, so fortunate. And I it's very relevant. That, Sorry, uh, Rabbi. Please. It's very relevant to what we do today, because anyone that was saved then has, in a way, produced or created huge family in the next uh, next generation and imagine what happens today when you really catch and bring back to our jewish tent a person that otherwise would have gone elsewhere and as we know we may talk about later the temptation outside of the jewish family is huge especially in the united states and anyone that we manage to bring in is not that one it's the hundred and thousand of jewish people that are going to be saved to our shrinking family. Right, a much longer sort of perspective and understanding the consequences of each individual, um, extremely important. What was it like growing up in a family in which the, both of your parents had sort of been orphaned and, and had left their native lands? And really, it sounds like had to start, start over with nothing I would imagine. And this is not Israel of today, where you can get, you know, come and, and be greeted by a, a, a government delegation off the plane and be set up in a high tech and whatever. This is a very different landscape and a very difficult period in, in the history of the state or even the pre-state. What was it like growing up uh, with parents who had gone through so much uh, trial to, to establish themselves? You know, I, I never felt uh, separate, I never felt uh, unique, because this was the plight of all my neighbors, of everybody around. So I really had a very, very happy childhood. Uh, my parents uh, really made, made it clear that they came to Israel in order to start living, in order to 
spend their lives uh, mourning about the past because what really matters is the future. And we need to be strong enough you know, to wake up every morning and think about the future and how we make our future by our hands uh, better than the past that we left. And this is uh, a message that I've been carrying with me since I was a child. And uh, I think that this is something that uh, is shared by many, many Israelis, that uh, instead of mourning about the past, you need to create uh, a future that you will not mourn about. What did your parents do to instill that in you? What was it that they sort of did in their lives that made sure that they were moving forward? First of all, they both were very hard workers. Let's start with that. Nothing was given to them by, uh, for granted. They were idealists. Uh, there is no idealism anymore, unfortunately. Many claim that the only ideal today is I-ism. So in the past, there used to be capitalism and socialism and whatever. And today is I-ism, and people care more and more about themselves, which is very legitimate. Uh, but this is the generation that we are working uh, with. These are our children, and we need to be the best parents in the world for our children. And in a sense, all the younger generation is our children. And uh, we need to adapt ourselves to them. And we say always that instead of bringing participants to Birthright Israel, we need to bring Birthright Israel to the participants. So this is where we are. And uh, I was saying it because once you are committed to ideals, etc., all the day-to-day -day hardships are really uh, minimized. And uh, I remember that we really had many, many days without knowing what was going to happen the day after in terms of food, in terms of uh, housing, etc. Uh, but everybody was like that. And it really taught us that uh, never say never, that the fact that you are weak today doesn't mean that you are going to be the strongest tomorrow. It's all in your hands. And uh, eventually, uh, a person in order to be completely successful needs, first of all, to work hard Secondly, to be talented. And thirdly, it won't uh, hurt if you have a little bit of luck. But that should be the pyramid. It could not be the other way around. If you build yourself on the basis of luck, you will never be successful. And that's what we try to do on Birth with Israel. As a rabbi, I would say uh, perhaps faith, I would use uh, instead of the word luck. But uh, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Your father came from, you said, from Satmer, which is not known as a, a very Zionistic sect of Hasidic Judaism. H how did he become so Zionistic? Was it something that was contentious in his early life? I really can't explain it, but I assume my father did not speak a lot about his childhood. Unfortunately, sure. for many of this generation, it was very hard to speak about their childhood. But from what I gather, their house uh, was too small to have 12 kids and a pair of parents. So when he was young, he was sent by his father to his uh, older brother who lived in a city. And a city is the mother of all sins, as you know. One of them was Zionism. <laughs> so he got intoxicated in Zionism. And actually, the Zionists were the ones who saved him in every place that he was uh, running uh, away from the Nazis in Europe until he found a safe place uh, somewhere in Europe and he was taken to Israel. Once coming to Israel, he was arrested by the Brits. And once he was released, 
he came over to kibbutz called Bet Oren when he met my mother, with whom he lived, I believe, over 60 years together. Wow, unbelievable. So beautiful. Yeah. So it sounds like they really instilled within you this passion for Zionism and for Israel, because as you said, you were a diplomat for many years. Was that a career that you had anticipated when you were in your IDF service? It sounds like you got an MBA, so it doesn't sound like you were on a diplomat track. How did that develop? I don't know. You know, I love to have a mission in life. Because at the end of the day, if you have more money or less money, it doesn't matter so much. The most important thing is at the end of the day, the end of the week, at the end of the month, you say to yourself, I really accomplished something which is much, much bigger than myself. And this is something that I was really, here I'm going to speak about luck. Here I was lucky enough to have experienced it since I was a child, more so during my military service, which also was a great, great sense of fulfillment. And everything that I did really gave me the sense of a great mission. And uh, certainly birthright is right, because uh, with birthright, I really started as the one who bought the first chairs, the first pens, the first uh, notebooks. Uh, uh, we made the first uh, research ever of how many Jews visit Israel, how many beds there are in Israel, how many hotels, etc. Uh, but we really, from day one, realized that we were not going to be a small organization. We knew that we were going to change the Jewish world upside down. And we, since day one, started to talk about big numbers. Because, and for me, big number at the time was 20,000. When we brought 10,000 instead of 2,000 that came before Birth of Israel, we started to really to stay, to talk big. And then the Edelsons came, Miri and Sheldon Edelson, who sure. are, I believe, the biggest givers ever towards Jewish education in the history. I think they just donated or committed another $70 million, if I read correctly. Uh, they've given us over $400 million. Huge, really huge. And they said, whatever you do in 24 hours, you could do at least twice as much. And we started to think about, if we do 25, why won't we do 50? So we put 51,000 as the uh, target number. Why? Because in every cohort in the Jewish world, there is 100,000 Jews born every year. And we said to ourselves, if we could bring the small number of 2,000 a year that used to go to Israel, knowing that going to Israel on a Jewish experience is the single most impactful experience that any young Jew could have in short time, and we knew that only 2,000 came, we said, okay, let's bring 10, let's bring 20. But if we brought 51,000, which would become a majority of 100,000, it will be the first time ever since the establishment of the State of Israel or even the last 2,000 years that a majority of young Jews come back to the mitzvah of pilgrimage, Aliyah Regel, that puts Israel at the center of their DNA. And that's what we have been doing. So I might tell you that last year we brought 48,000. This year, we're working very hard to cross the threshold of the 50,000, and we will have to change our goal to 60, 70, because I believe that we still have a lot, a lot to do. You know, I'm so curious, going back a little bit in the history of birthright, 
you know, it sounds like, again, you were a diplomat and you were in New York and you had this sort of serendipitous encounter uh, with Yossi Balin and these philanthropists. Tell us a little bit about how this whole idea started. What was the germination of Birthright? Was it the brainchild of this particular Knesset member? Uh, was it a couple of philanthropists who, who had ideas? Where was the original seeds planted even before they asked you to jump on board? So I really cherish Yossi Bailey. And uh, it's great to come up with an idea and I really do not want to compromise this compliment. However, it is much harder for renowned philanthropists, somebody who has something to lose financially and in terms of an image, etc., to say, okay, as crazy as it sounds, I'm going to adopt it. And uh, actually, the ones who really adopted the rough idea of sending every young Jew for free to Israel, which was his idea, he spoke about at the age of 17, etc. We changed it later on totally, but this was the original idea. Um, I really would salute uh, Charles Bronfman, who was the Bronfman family, you know, and he had a lot to lose by taking a chance, and Michael Steiner, who was a legendary Wall Street uh, uh, man, to, for them to adopt what was seen at the time as a crazy idea really required a lot of courage. And they were the ones who said, you know what, in spite of whatever everybody says about us, we are going to invest money. And each and every one of them put $16 million at the time which was unheard of amount of money. And they said, if we lost it, at least we knew that we tried something. And we will not become poor. We'll become <laughs> poorer, and, but we might lose some of our uh, social prestige, but at least we knew that we do something. And indeed they did it. And out of, I don't know, they should have played lottery the same day because it really worked. They hired the best CEO that I know by the name of Simpson Shoshani, who was my first CEO and the second one of Versailles Israel, who had huge track record. And uh, he has put it together. And uh, we actually uh, implemented mostly the preparation uh, work that was done pro bono for us by McKinsey Company and a group of talented Israeli uh, planners. Um, some of them uh, are well known today, like uh, Gidi Greenstein from the Riot Institute and uh, Yoav Shapira and others, together with a group of American planners from McKinsey, like Lori Blitzer. And we put a very thick book, That's Why Birthright Israel is the best planned startup in the history of the Jewish people, really. Until today, when I look at the book, that we started of about two, 300 uh, pages, I still see that we implement mostly what was written then, in spite of the fact that we all the time elevate what we do and we improve and we change and we introduce new things, but the overall approach is about the same. And we know that if we don't change, we are doomed. Because the world of today, is not a world of yesterday, and tomorrow is going to go forward even faster. So what we've been doing over the last four or five years is to introduce 
new experience in Israel that will better connect Israel and the world jury. And uh, we, we saw over the last uh, five, seven years, a new program called Excel, uh, where we try to identify the best and brightest from amongst campus students that have the best chance to become the business leaders of Jewish life in the next 20, 30 years. And uh, we select about 40, 50 out of them to go to Israel for 10 weeks to enter in Israel. They have their own Israeli, uh, both mentors and soulmates. We select in Israel also the same number of Israelis that are going to be very smart and, and, and active leaders of the Israeli society. And we try to build together a group, a community of decision makers who are committed Jews, who are successful business leaders, and are committed to bringing the Jewish people into a better place, as, as well as the state of Israel. So this is only one of many, many programs that we've been building over the last uh, seven, eight years. And now, more intensively, in the last uh, three, four years, we have introduced seven-day possibility, because we realize that the older ages that we bring over to Israel do not have as many vacation days than uh, like the older ones had. We established now something which is called Birthright Israel Plus, uh, which takes advantage of the fact that about 30%, about 15,000 of our participants stay longer in Israel. Why? Because on each group, we have eight Israelis. And these Americans and non-Israeli and non-Americans who come to Israel for the 10 days get to know new members of their new family who are Israelis, and they tend to stay with them for a few days. And we realized if you stay with them for two days, for a few days, why won't you extend it and take another extra uh, four or five days of really diving into themes like foodies, tracks in Israel, Israeli uh, tradition, Jewish tradition, Jewish spirituality, etc., that will be over and above the 10 days or the 7 days. So until today, we have brought over to Israel 500,000 young Jews who were accompanied in Israel by 100,000 Israelis. I want to ask you about that because that, to many that would sound like a very unusual aspect of the program, that, you know, birthright is meant to bring diaspora Jews to Israel, to tour the land, to connect to the land of Israel. It seems kind of uh, bizarre to some that there would be Israelis, native Israelis, uh, joining the trip. And as you mentioned, just so people understand that pretty much every Birthright Israel program includes usually around eight uh, Israelis. Often they are active duty IDF soldiers. Sometimes they might be just out of their service or a little bit older, but they are participants on the trip for at least half of the time and more and more now for the entire time of the trip. Where did that idea come from? Who conceived of that? And what's the goal there? Because it must be distinct from the initial goal of bringing diaspora Jewry to Israel. So the first, uh, the first idea was to bring the Israelis as a sidekick, uh, as, a, as a supplement, in order to connect our non-Israeli participants, not only to Israel, but rather to Israelis. We understand that the most important thing is 
not only to talk about the past, the most important thing is to craft your own present and most importantly, Jewish future. And in order to connect somebody to the future with his or her Jewish identity or to Israel, you need to create some uh, incentives for them to, to come again and again and again. So if you connect people only to the past, you know, you saw the Masada once, I don't believe that you will come 10 times in your life to Masada. You know, I, <laughs> I went to the... Unless you're leading a trip, <laughs> It's like me going to the Statue of Liberty. When I came to New York, people told me, if you don't go in the first day, you will never go. And you know what? I went there the first day, and ever since, I did not go. <laughs> so in order to connect people to really active Judaism or active connectedness to Israel, one needs to have friends. One needs to have things that have to do with their hobbies or to their professional development. And this is something that also has evolved over the years. So when we started to analyze the impact of Birth at Israel, and we are the best research uh, organization in, uh, in Jewish life today, uh, I can say we are engaged with Brandeis University, Professor Len Sachs, since day one. And we have, I believe, the largest uh, database in, uh, in the Jewish world today. And we continue to compare those who went to on birthright Israel in year one against those who registered and did not go, what happened today, year two, year three. And we see two separate communities that are starting to distance from each other in terms of parameters of profile. The ones that went on birthright Israel to these 10 short 10 days are much, much more engaged in their Jewish activities, Jewish understanding, relationships with Israel, relationships with Israelis, act activism in, in the community, etc., as compared to the ones who were about to go but did not go for certain reasons. And uh, this is something that we uh, realized after the analysis of the Israelis. We said, we realized, wow, it's not only impacting on the non-Israelis, the Israelis now are better citizens and realize that for the IDF, it's a great asset. And uh, recently, the IDF has approached us and they want us to do tailor-made trips for the officers that they are running after because they want them to continue to serve in the IDF. The IDF is having some retention issues and challenges in maintaining people that in the IDF would make 8,000 shekels a month, and they are offered outside $8,000 a month. Right. And people realize that the only thing that can really convince people to stay is not money. The only thing is the conviction that what I do really matters. And what happens with Birthright Israel, that the best and the brightest of the soldiers who go on the trip hear for the first time in their lives what you do is extremely important, not only for the state of Israel. You are protecting the whole Jewish people. So you hear it in the first day, second day, third day. And I must admit, my father served in the army. He never gave me any compliment for me serving in the army. I have three sons. So I never said to them even one good word about it because for us it's natural. Once my sons go on the bus, they hear 40 times every day, wow, you serve your country. So it really makes them understand how important the role is 
and we are trying to help uh, with it in Israel. So we have now two communities around the world, 500,000 even more by now, and 100,000 Israelis who communicate with, with each other. They have a reason to come back and again and again. And indeed, uh, alumni of Birthright have 70% more probability to visit Israel again because they have somebody to visit. In the last uh, two years, we have established Innovation Center, the first ever uh, innovation center in Israel, which showcases the advancement uh, of Israel in high tech, second only to Silicon Valley. Uh, Israel is number two in Nasdaq only to the United States, more than South Korea, India, and Japan put together. So when mainly Americans come to Israel and they expect to see camels, they see that in addition to the camels, <laughs> there are some computers which make Israel one of the most advanced countries in the world, and it makes them connect. Although I'll say, like you, better, you better make sure you do show them the camels, or they're very upset. <laughs> we, we really are trying very hard to create computerized camels, so that will <laughs> encompass everything together. So we try to give them, you know, it's a first deepest, first taste of what Israel is all about. And we say that birth rate is only a beginning of a lifetime journey. It's only a door to the Jewish people. Birth rate Israel is not the Jewish people. Birth rate Israel is a door that is opened to your new opportunities. And there are thousands of new opportunities around the world. And unfortunately, too many young people are deterred by what they think is some kind of a gloomy old community, etc. But once you open the door, you have the opportunity to start seeing that not everything is as you heard before. So you should try your luck. As much as you did not understand how Israel could be nice, once you went on birth at Israel, you should start to understand that Jewish life also could become as compelling as anything else. It's interesting, you know, it seems like now, looking back, this is such an, an obvious idea, you know, such a, a no-brainer, as we, we would say, you know, but you mentioned that there was early opposition to birthright, that people, you know, that this was this monumental risk that people like Michael Steinhardt and Charles Bronfman uh, were taking. Why was there early opposition? Why was there, why was this considered such a risky maneuver altogether when we've seen such profound success, which again, in hindsight, looks inevitable. People are afraid of new things. We need to understand it, and that's why we need to bring as many new things as possible, because it really immunes us. And when we started, everybody used to tell me, first of all, you're stupid that you left your diplomatic career. <laughs> I was not important at the time, but they, they used to say to Charles Roth and Michael Steiner, you, you, your prestige is much too high for you in order to put it in risk. And they, instead of being deterred, they went to their friends. So Lynn Schusterman was the next one who right. joined us. Actually, she joined them and many others. And they put together a group of the most prominent Jewish philanthropists. But still, Organized Jewish life, you know, mainly, feder many federations, not all of them, many federations, 
and in Israel, many institutions, I will not mention them by name, and members of Knesset, they try to boycott us, they try to prevent any funding of birthright Israel. The whole, the whole establishment was afraid that this new child in the neighborhood was going to steal their game. And I believe that uh, fortunately, there is no uh, or shouldn't be any competition on Jewish money. The unfortunate thing is that majority of Jewish money goes to non-Jewish causes. So we need to help each other, and it's never enough. And uh, what Birthright Israel does during the trip, it ignites many, many sensitive points that every person has in different places. And these places are ignited by different sparks. And this spark should be developed afterwards when they come back home. And there should be endless number of opportunities of, for every young Jew to be ignited by a Jewish spark. And there should not be competition on Jewish money. The only competition should be on good things. And the quality should control. And I know that it's very hard. It's not easy to run a competitive, successful educational program outside of Israel because the competition outside in an open world is endless. But uh, that's why I live in Israel. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned follow-up and the idea that you want to ignite people and inspire them to continue and that birthright is really just the inauguration of a journey. I think one of the perhaps criticisms that people have leveled is that Birthright has this incredible, as you say, database and this incredible ability to bring people in. Why hasn't Birthright invested itself in creating the follow-up opportunities? You mentioned a few small initiatives that have now started, but in the bigger picture, really getting kids involved back in America or wherever they might live and helping encourage that kind of Jewish life. And the approach has been more hands-off, that we will inspire them and then whoever is back in America can pick them up and, and try to take them to the next level. Why has that been the approach that Birthright has championed? Look, it's, it's an endless, endless question without a good answer. The fact that we don't do follow-up doesn't mean that we totally believe that they shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do follow-up. There is an ongoing discussion that started since the 11th day of Birthright, of the first trip. And we realized that we need to do what we do the best, which is connecting young Jews to Israel, connecting young Israelis to world Jewry, building the largest ever bridge that connects two or the Jewish communities around the world to Israel and vice versa. And I spoke, for example, beforehand about Excel. Excel might be one of the financial pillars of this bridge. And indeed, against the ones who mourn and decry the destiny of the Jewish people uh, as if it's never been so bad, etc. I don't say that there are no problems today. There are many, many problems. But we also need to remember the other side, which is there's never been a situation in the history of Jewish people that half million young Jews outside of Israel knew at least one out of 100,000 Israelis in Israel. You cannot compare the situation today to about 18 years ago, and we are now um, celebrating our high anniversary. So 18 years ago, hardly one Israeli knew hardly one non-Israeli. I'm sure not. 
And look what happens today. So we still have the issues between the establishments, etc., that need to be fixed. But instead of crying for what's uh, happening here, we decided to continue. Now, seven is my first of all to do, and only then to look around. Because if we don't do what we do, we really are doomed. So that's what we have been doing uh, uh, since we were established 18 years ago. And we decided that uh, every additional dollar, and my first commitment is to my participants. My second commitment is to my funders. And my funders need to know that every cent that they give us is well spent. And our competitive edge today is to establish the relationship. Our best competitive edge today is to open the door. If we realize that there is something that there is no competition, nobody does, and it's going to change the Jewish people, I believe that there will be a majority of, uh, amongst us who will do it. We right now, for example, are creating an app that will showcase to our participants while once finishing Israel, all the opportunities to go back to Israel or to explore something in their own communities. I must say that uh, we give our database to Hillel, to federations, uh, to Massa, which is a longer term sure. experience in Israel. So we do share our database in order for other organizations to be prosperous at over the basis of the success of Earthquake Israel. We don't keep the database for ourselves. On the contrary, we would like other Jewish organizations to flourish, short from us getting into doing things that others might do better than us. If we realize that the only thing that can be done in terms of follow-up that only Birthright Israel could do, I believe that we would do. We didn't realize until today that there is something that we were the only ones that could carry out something which is as outstanding as the trips to Israel. In the famous uh, famous business book, Good to Great, I believe Jim Collins uh, refers to it as a hedgehog concept, something which knowing what you excel at and really doubling down and becoming the absolute best in that area, it sounds like that's what you've, uh, you've chosen to pursue. Um, interestingly, along the lines of getting other organizations involved on the back end, another interesting aspect of Birthright is that on the front end, you've really chosen to decentralize in a certain way. And Birthright itself, again, maybe many of my listeners don't know that Birthright itself really is an umbrella. It doesn't run trips directly. It supplies the funding and the guidelines, but ultimately channels the trips and the programs through a variety of individual and unique organizations. How did that come about, and why did you choose to service the Jewish world in that way? So, in Hebrew you say, whatever. we are the largest Jewish organization that was established in the 21st century. Most of the establishment organizations of the Jewish world were established in the 20th century to serve causes of the 20th century under structural organization that was very popular in the 20th century. We came up to life 21st century where the prevailing word was outsourcing. And indeed, you know, I fell in love in the concept. It means that you do only the things that no other party can do, which gives you a lot, a lot of time 
to strategize, to standardize, to fundraise, and to make the right supervision in order to improve yourself through a very deep and thorough research that you should do. So we do it. Uh, actually, our budget this year is $150 million, and our um, number of employees is around 80, which is very, very small as compared to other organizations. Uh, we don't believe that we are the best in the world in booking hotel rooms. So we hire the best companies that do book the hotel rooms. We do believe that we are the best in the world, at least in our small Jewish world, uh, in booking uh, flights. So that's what we do. We do only things that we believe that we are the best in doing. In recent years, we have uh, taken down the number of trip organizers, what we call the providers that uh, work for us, with us. We took the number down from 30 in 2000 to 10 in the United States or 12 worldwide today. And we have the best variety of potential providers. Uh, we have religious, non-religious, American-based, Israeli-based, for-profit, non-profit, and each and every one of our participants is able to choose at least one of what they really care about in terms of interest. So we have interest-based groups and we have profession-based trips out of close to 1,300 groups that we send to Israel every year, 20% are niche trips. We have trips for scuba divers. We have trips for bike riders. We have trips for uh, medics and for, for medical doctors. And we have trips for foodies. And we have uh, trips for Crohn disease. People who have Crohn disease and people who are handicapped, special needs. In a sense, I believe that today there should not be even one Jew outside of Israel who could say, I want something and birthright Israel does not give me. Now, we cannot give bike tour every day, but anybody who really cares about bike tour would be able to, to take a bike tour. If there are people who would be interested in meeting with Arabs, so some of our trips enable participants to meet with Arabs. Some of them would like to meet with people who live in kibbutz, people who want to meet with Haredi people, people who want to meet with people in the periphery. There is no one opportunity that people really care about and they would want to see in Israel that they want to be able to find in Israel. For example, we bring for years now uh, lacrosse groups, and somebody told me that the majority of the players of the national team of Israel are alumni of Bertha Israel. I think I saw a video where the, the founder of the league in Israel, right? I was at one of the mega events and they played a video. I think the founder yeah. of the league was a birthright alumna. So we start uh, seeing the input of birthright Israel now getting into, first of all, to Jewish communities worldwide. Uh, for example, in uh, uh, research that we conducted recently, we realized that 70% of le Jewish leaders on campus are alumni of birthright. And in Israel, more and more commanders of the IDF have an experience of birthright Israel. I can tell you a very nice two stories, if I have Please. time to, about uh, the impact of birthright Israel. I got a call uh, from a major in the power trooper 
Um, and uh, he said, Gidi, I'm, my wife is going to Penn University to do her, her PhD. So we're going to be there for three years and I would like to volunteer for you. And I said, look, we are such a small organization. We don't have volunteers. He said, Gidi, I, I must do something for you. I said, why? He said, you know, my battalion uh, was uh, stationed now, positioned now around Gaza. And every evening before going on activity, used to shake the water bottles of, 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 the, of the soldiers to see that they don't make noise. And we used to laugh amongst ourselves. The, the ones who said, Beseder uh, in American accent, <laughs> they used to know that there are Bursat alumni who decided to go to the Israeli IDF. <laughs> and this is my payback to them to serve their Jewish community when I'm going to spend there for three years. And uh, another story is that we do have a very robust program of incentivizing uh, the Israeli IDF units, and we call it Pras uh, Taglit, the Taglit Birthright Israel Award to the best units in the IDF. In many units, there is a big competition who goes on the trip, because, and especially amongst commanders who want their soldiers to go because they come back refreshed and much more ambitious in order to carry on their duties. So we met with the people who are one of the, I will not mention the name of the unit, but it's one of the units that you keep hearing about all the time. And uh, we started with the colonel who is the head of the unit, why Bursa Israel is important for me, his deputies, etc. And the captain who was on birthright with the group, I believe, from Yale, etc., my best friend, etc., until number 10 was a soldier. She was the social worker of the base. And she said, Shalom, hello, my name is Sveta. I was born in Ukraine. At the age of three, my parents decided to leave Ukraine when the gates were open over there because for years they used to hear every time these dirty Jews. And the first opportunity that they had to go, they decided to go. They came over to Israel, and she said, as we arrived in Ashkelon, in Israel, the first thing that me, the dirty Jew, heard was, you're Russian. And when I was young, I used to tell them, I'm not Russian, I'm from Ukraine. But for the Israelis, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> she was a Russian. So she said, at the age of 18, after three years, being called a Jew, and 15 years being called a Russian, I hopped on a bus from the United States with American participants, and this was the first time ever that anybody called me, you Israeli. <laughs> so thank you, Birthright Israel, for giving me my Israeli identity. Beautiful stories, okay. beautiful stories. In closing, Gideon, I just want to ask you, looking towards the future, you've spoken a lot about the need to look towards the future. What do you see as the challenges that Birthright faces? I mean, clearly it's accomplished remarkable things in the last 18 years, really a paradigm shift in the way the diaspora looks at visiting Israel and, and the youth thinks about their opportunity to travel there. But there are challenges, and, and I'm curious to, to hear from you, you know, what you perceive as the signature challenges that remain to the growth of this program, to the success of the program, and how you'd like to encounter those challenges? So the single 
the largest competitor of ours today is the free time of the potential participants. In a way, I would like to be to feel like Google, like Facebook. I know that it's a little bit uh, megalomaniac in a sense that there are not too many people who have the guts not to use them. I would like to get into a situation that would be not enough courageous Jews who would say, I'm, I pass on it. In a sense that I would like Birth at Israel to be the ultimate rite of passage for every young Jew, because it's not a trip to Israel only. It's a trip to oneself. It's the only opportunity that young people have to take 10, seven days of their lives and to think quietly, usually not quietly, <laughs> who I am, why I am, where I'm going to, and this is a gift that not the Jewish people give them. This is a gift that they are going to give themselves because beforehand and after, afterwards, I'm not sure that they will be given any more opportunities such as this one. So, you know, I am fully in love with Israel. I'm a full committed Jew. But before everything, this is a gift to them, to their own identity, Jewish or not, to think who I am, where I am, where I want to be. And if everybody understood the importance of this gift to themselves, not to the Jewish people, to themselves, and we, the envelope, the people around it, would be smart and wise enough not to make too many mistakes, but on the contrary, all the time, come up with updated, adequate policy that will keep, continue, and continue to uh, attract them. To tomorrow, we will be viable. The onus is on ourselves. With the opportunity that we have is immense. The responsibility is immense. And you know what? That's why we are Jews and we are destined to work hard. And it's a great privilege for all of us to wake up every morning and think about the future because we have once in a lifetime opportunity to change the future of the Jewish people. And I'll tell you, as, as a campus rabbi who has run now, I think around 13 birthright trips and recruits all the time for birthright, perhaps the most heartbreaking experience that I have on campus is when I'm labeling and, and trying to, you know, out there on the campus and, and re promoting birthright, recruiting for birthright, and to hear someone, a Jewish kid, walk by and said, I I'm okay, I'm not interested. And you want to just grab him and shake him and, you know, I'm giving you a $4,000 gift. I'm giving you a gift that will change your life. And I'm okay, I'm good. And it's very frustrating. And of course, you can't grab a kid and you can't, I don't want to be arrested, you know, but it's very frustrating. And of course, thank God there are many kids that are saying yes, but there are many kids that still are saying no. And the great challenge, I think, for all of us is to figure out how to make that a greater percentage are saying yes and fewer are saying no. The other challenge that I see is that birthright has been so successful that kids now, they don't feel a sense of urgency to go. There's a phrase now, I'll take my birthright in three years, six years, whatever it is. It's like such a take yeah, right. granted. How do we deal with that? How do we give students a sense of urgency that don't wait till you're 25. Don't wait till after graduation. Do it now. You'll go back again. How do you think that we can increase that sense of urgency for potential participants? I don't know. I'll tell you the truth. I don't know. It's very hard. 
because we had many pundits, we had many experts. We there is no one world-renowned marketing guru that we did not consult with. Everybody told us if you want it to be a rare commodity, you need to limit the number. But our Jewish heart would not let us do it because in order to create 50,000 to minimize to reduce our number this year to 30,000. I will not sleep uh, tight at night, and neither will uh, be our funders, because at the end of the day, all of them are very tough business people, but very soft Jews. And when you tell them, you tell them, you know, so why won't we limit the number this year so people will see that there is curve of demand? They're, no, 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 let's find another argument. And we've been looking for arguments, and not only that, you know, that we start as of this year to add another layer of age, Right. And and this was the criticism 32. to many people, up to 32. So now why should a college kid go? And uh, Exactly. But I believe that everybody can get something out of it in different age, from different angle. And if I were a candidate, I would go as early as possible because, you know what, if you, if you get the best shoes in the world, why won't you start walking with them at the age of 18? Wait until if you get the best, I don't know what, gift in the world, why don't you start using it as early as possible? Why wait until the age of 32? But you know what? All of them are children. And the fact that somebody did not go at the age of 18 does make this person a, a foreigner, so a stranger. So we need to take care of all of them. And we realize that the 32 of today is the 26 of 18 years ago. If we continue like that in about 50 years, we should start bringing 77. Or <laughs> Walkers at the end of the day, we will have to make sure that no one Jew is left behind because of lack of money. As Sheldon Ellison states it all the time, his father could not visit Israel because when he really wanted, he was too old and too, uh, and too weak. And uh, before, they did not have the money. So uh, luckily, we have the Adelsons and we have the Bronsons and the Steinarts and the Sterns and the Schustermans and so many good Jews who really give out from themselves to the benefit of the Jewish people. And this is a generosity that nobody sees around the world. You know, I go and speak about birthright Israel in many countries because some countries are trying now to imitate our success. So I was invited in the past to Bulgaria and Macedonia and most recently to Lithuania, and they all want to adopt the model of birthright Israel in order to return their younger generation back home because they are losing the younger generation. And they are starting to learn how we do it. The only thing that they are all astonished, how come your people are so generous and they give it as a gift. Nobody in our nation is going to agree to it. So this is something that, you know, we Jews like to complain all the time about how bad we are. So let's take a break and for some minutes, think about how good we are sometimes because the level of generosity that they see among our people is really rare. Truly amazing. And if you don't mind, Gidi, I think I'm going to borrow your line about uh, comfortable shoes. I'm going to try that out on campus. I think it's great. Um, and I really do. I think we have to find a way to help more people experience that sense of urgency, recognize that what they're going to 
enjoy is so profound and they'll come back again and again because they've had the experience. Um, that's an experience that we're so grateful that you have helped foster, of course, with incredible support of the funders. And I might add as well of the state of Israel itself. And you said early on, they were maybe not as uh, excited about it. I need to make a difference between some politicians in Israel and the government. We were really, really lucky by the fact that the first prime minister that we approached was Netanyahu. And he, in spite of the fact that he was very revolutionary, he said, count me in, I'm, I'm fully in. Until he said Jack Robinson, he was out. So <laughs> the first prime minister who gave us money was Ehud Barak and everybody afterwards, you know, uh, Sharon and Olmert, and now again, of course, uh, Netanyahu, are uh, big, big proponents and supporters of Birth at Israel because they realize that this is the largest bridge that connects Israel today uh, to the Jewish people. And if we talk about ambassadors, Israel has two strong ambassadors. One is Birth at Israel, 500,000 ambassadors around the world. And number two is the high tech of Israel. And what we are trying in recent years to do is to combine both of them. Well, Giddy Mark, we want to thank you so much for your time, inspiring story, and really for shepherding an incredible, incredible organization and an operation that is continuing to bring 48,000, God willing, 51,000, and eventually perhaps 100,000 Jews a year to our holy land. Thank you very, very much, Giddy Mark. Thank you very much, Rabbi, for what you do. You do not, le not much less but rather much more because you bring them, you change their lives, and they owe you a lot during the years that they still have to live, which is over 120. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.